There are around 340,000 Christian churches in the United States. That's over 300 different denominations. And each of these denominations, if not each church itself, has a different flavor, a different focus. Christianity and church life in America seems extremely diverse. Which reminds me, how many Southern Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but 16 million had to vote on it first. How many Roman Catholics does it take to change a light bulb? Nine, one to change it and eight to raffle off the old one. How many charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? Three, one to cast it out and two to catch it when it falls. How many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? Change? What's change? How many Amish does it take to change a light bulb? A light bulb? What's a light bulb? (laughs) How many Church of Christ does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but if anyone else tries it, the light won't come on. How many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? Three, one to do it, one to bless the element, and one to say how much they like the old one. (laughs) How many Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? They don't know, but there's a committee studying the issue. And last but not least, how many Calvary Chapel guys does it take to change a light bulb? One, but he's never on time. (laughs) Ouch. Hey, we assume churches are like ice cream. They come in 31 flavors. But that's not how Jesus sees us. I believe that Revelation chapters 1 through 3 teach that there are only seven types of churches and seven sorts of members. In chapter 1, Jesus routed his revelation through the apostle John to the seven churches in Mediterranean Asia, which is today western Turkey. Thus, chapters 2 and 3 are nicknamed Talk in Turkey. In chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus instructed John, What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now understand, there were other churches in the Asian province, at least a dozen or so. But Jesus chose to address these seven. So the question arises, why did Jesus select these churches and why are they listed in this order? First realize these seven cities were all connected in a horseshoe shape by Roman roads. Historians suggest that these cities were stops along a postal route. Mail came by sea to Ephesus, and from there the Pony Express followed a circuit. North along the coast to Smyrna and then Pergamos, and then the route swung inland east to to Smyrna and then Pergamos, and then east toward Thyatira. Afterwards, it turned south through Sardis, Philadelphia, and then eventually Laodicea. All seven cities were within about 50 miles of each other. These were cities with actual churches. They had real people, real hardships, real challenges, real blessings. And Jesus writes each of these churches a customized letter. We can learn a lot, both individually and corporately, from Jesus' analysis of each of these seven churches. You know, in the scriptures, the number seven speaks of spiritual perfection, or completion. 
And I believe these seven churches are a representative sample of all churches at that time, throughout the ages, even today. There may be 340,000 congregations in America, but there are really only seven types of churches and seven types of Christians. You can find you and us and me here in these letters. In fact, I believe the order that these letters were written and delivered is no accident. There's more to it than just making it easy on the postman. The spiritual postage on these letters is enough to send them much, much further. Amos chapter 3 verse 7 is a provocative verse. It relays a divine principle. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. In essence, God keeps his people in the loop. He's up front about what he's up to. From creation all the way to Christ, the Old Testament records God's workings and ways. The Gospels recount the earthly ministry of Jesus, probably the most important three and a half years in the history of the world. Acts is the first 30 years of the church. But what about the 1900 years since? What we call the Christian era. Has God commented? I heard it said, a good mailman always keeps you posted. And based on Amos chapter 3 verse 7, I believe that God has kept us posted. He has recorded the church age in advance in these seven letters to the seven churches. As we study them, you'll see that each one bears a resemblance to a succeeding era of church history. From Ephesus and the early church to Smyrna, the church of the second and third centuries, to Pergamos, the Byzantine church, then Thyatira, the papal church of the Middle Ages, on to Sardis and the churches of the Protestant Reformation, through Philadelphia and the missionary zeal of the 19th century, down to Laodicea and the modern church. You can trace church history through these seven churches, Author Joseph Zeiss, he sums it up this way. The churches of all time are comprehended in seven. Well, chapter two begins. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, in chapter 1, we learn this was Jesus, the risen, the exalted Lord, writes a letter to his church. He addresses it to the angel, or literally to the messenger. Whether that's a pastor or whether that's a literal angel, the point is, is that Jesus sees, and he knows, and he cares about his church. You see, Jesus loves to hang out in his church, among the lampstands. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, Jesus told his disciples, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Make no mistake about it, Jesus loves his church. It's no surprise here to see him in the midst of the lampstands. He writes to this church at Ephesus, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. And have found them liars. And you have preserved 
and have patient, persevered and had patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. That's a pretty impressive resume. The Ephesians were doing a lot right. They were serving and sacrificing. They were enduring. They were showing great spiritual discernment. You remember in Acts chapter 20, Paul had warned these same Ephesians. In fact, the elders of Ephesus. He had told them, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And here we learn that they had taken heed to that warning. There was zero tolerance for falsehood in this church. And yet, despite their sterling resume, the Lord says, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. There's a classic country song my dad used to sing around the house. It was by Hank Williams. The chorus goes, why don't you love me like you used to do? How come you treat me like a worn out shoe? My hair is still curly and my eyes are still blue. Why don't you love me like you used to do? <laughs> and this is sort of what the Lord is here singing to the church at Ephesus. They didn't love him like they used to love him. The furnace was there, but the fire had died out. Understand, Ephesus represents the early church of the apostles. Just 60 years now have elapsed between this letter and the birth of the church. And already the love of many had grown cold. Christians were going through the motions without the devotion. There was no passion. Note how Jesus phrases the problem. It's not that they lost their first love. It's that they had left their first love. And that's good news. For if they had lost it, they wouldn't know where to find it. But since they left it, they can trace back and they can rekindle it. Verse 5 tells us how to revive our first love. The remedy consists of three R's. If you find tonight that you've left your first love, pay attention to these three things. Remember, repent, and repeat. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Or as the NIV puts it, remember the height from which you have fallen. Recall the time when you were passionate about your faith, the fire that once burned. And then repent, forever allowing that love to die out. And then repeat. He says, do the first works. Repeat those activities that stoked the fire in the first place and caused your faith to grow. Your own times of Bible study and worship and prayer and fellowship and even getting out and telling other people about Jesus. These were the things you used to do because you loved him so much. It's time to go back and repeat those first works. He says, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus warns that unless we take heed and rekindle the fire, he'll pack up our lampstand and he'll sit us on the shelf. He would rather have no witness than a witness void of love. Verse 6, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now here's another feather in their cap. They refuse to tolerate bullies. Nicolaitans is a combination of two Greek words, Nike, which means conqueror, and Laos, which is the laity or the common folk. And apparently there were Ephesians who liked to throw their weight around and act superior to other Christians. There was an ecclesiastical elite among this church. Jesus says he hates this kind of snobbery, and so should we. Leaders should serve, 
not be served. And so the Lord ends this first letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Hey, two believers who rekindle and recover this first love, God reserves that same sweet communion and intimacy for all eternity. Verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Today, Smyrna is known as Izmir, Turkey. The city is 35 miles north of Ephesus and was known for an aromatic resin that was harvested there. The church became a sweet smell, a pleasant aroma to God. The root word for Smyrna is myrrh, a spice that was used for embalming those who had died, embalming the dead bodies. And the church of Smyrna became synonymous for the persecuted, martyred church throughout the ages, especially the scorned church of the second and third centuries. During this period, emperor worship was the chief religion of Rome. And Smyrna was the home of the temple of Tiberius, the birthplace of this heretical egomania. The church remained true to Jesus and refused to utter Caesar is Lord. One by one, they were tossed to the lions or they were burned at the stake, crying out their, their anthem, Jesus is Lord. Smyrna's most famous martyr was Pastor Polycarp. He told the Romans, you threaten fire which burns for an hour and is soon quenched, for you are ignorant of the fire of eternal punishment. Polycarp was burned at the stake, but the flames only encircled him. The onlooker said that the Roman executioner had to plunge a dagger into his side. As, a leg as legend has it, when he did, a dove actually flew out. Polycarp was one of five million believers martyred by Roman emperors between the years of 65 and 312 A.D. Five million. The Fox's Book of Martyrs recounts the stories of the incredible faith of this persecuted but faithful church. And Jesus writes to them. Jesus writes to Smyrna. These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Isn't that great how he introduces himself? Jesus reminds them of his own martyrdom, that he was faithful unto death, and as a result, God has raised him up. In other words, there's hope for you. Verse 9, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. Their property had been confiscated. They were deprived of inheritances and employment. Their piety had produced an earthly poverty, but poor was not how God saw them. To him, they were rich. Their faithfulness had stored up for them riches in heaven. Jesus says, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Just as with the crucifixion of Jesus, it was a joint venture of Jews and Romans. Likewise, the persecution of the early church. Christians who taught God's grace and faith encountered hostility, not only from the Roman authorities, but from the synagogues as well. How ironic, the Jews claimed to be children of God, but in reality, they were tools in the hands of Satan. And yet, he says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. I love that. Jesus tells his church, no fear. We have hope in heaven. We have comfort on earth. 
Trust God with your future. I hope you hear the words of Jesus tonight. Don't fear. Amazingly, whenever the church has been persecuted, it has only gotten stronger. Persecution purifies and eventually multiplies. The church father, Tertullian, who lived around this time, made the comment, the blood of the martyrs is the seeds of the church. It's interesting, nothing negative was said of Smyrna. Persecution has a way of knocking all the straddlers off the fence. Verse 10 includes another detail. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Some folks take these 10 days to mean 10 periods. And they've identified 10 waves of intense persecution that occurred during the days of the Roman Empire, starting with Nero in 64 AD and ending with Diocletian in 312 AD. Jesus' final word to the persecuted church is, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. You know, there's an old saying, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. And that is so true. If you are born again of the Spirit of God, you'll die physically, but spiritually you'll live forever with Jesus Christ. Verse 12 begins another letter. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now notice in each of these letters, Jesus introduces himself in a way that's relevant to that particular church. And here's a, a, a similar case. The issue in Pergamos was compromise. And thus the cure for this church is what? It's the sharp two-edged sword of the word of God. Jesus continues, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. When the Babylonians fell to the Persians, the ancient cult of Nimrod, all of its idols and its pagan priests, they relocated to Asia, to this city of Pergamos. This became a center for idolatry and pagan practices. This was sin city, you could say. This was a tough place to be a Christian. And yet this church had stood firm. Verse 13 tells us, And you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Who this Antipas was, we're not sure, but his faithfulness epitomized the church at Pergamos and the stand that they took for our Lord Jesus. So far, so good for Pergamos. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Now, you remember Balaam from Numbers chapter 22. Balaam was an ancient Harry Potter. He was a wizard who was hired by the king of Moab to curse Israel. And yet when God stopped Balaam from uttering his curse, Balaam countered. Rather than a head-on assault, he was the architect of a backdoor approach. 
Balaam gathered up all of the Hooters girls from Moab. He threw some kegs of beer in to go with him. And he used it all to entice the Israelites into compromise. Understand this. The church at Pergamos was willing to lay down their life for Christ. But they weren't willing to lay down their rights and live faithfully for him every day. And there's a big difference. There are those who can make that colossal sacrifice. But can you make the daily sacrifice? So you can die for him. Can you live for him? Sometimes that's harder. You see, the church is like a ship. Ships are made to be in the water. But if the water ever gets into the ship, there's a problem. And likewise, the church is built by God to be in this world. Let's shine our light. But when the world gets into the church, we sink. Compromise springs the leak. When the church goes to bed with the world by adopting human wisdom and worldly philosophy, God equates it to infidelity. We are unfaithful to our Lord. And that's what happened in the church at Pergamos. This is what plagued the Byzantine church when you look at these letters historically. In 312 AD, Emperor Constantine embraced Christianity. He wanted everyone else to follow suit. And so he incorporated incorporated pagan practices into Christian worship. He tried to make Christianity more palatable to the Roman tastes. What emerged over the centuries was a new brand of Roman Christianity with no real biblical basis at all. Practices like praying for the dead and the veneration of the saints and Mary and extreme unction and purgatory and infant baptism and Lent and the use of icons and celibacy among the priesthood and even the office of the Pope were all Christianized, originally pagan practices that were Christianized. Tragically, Constantine's strategy did far more harm than good. Church tradition overshadowed biblical truth. And distracted believers from the centrality of Christ. This is what always occurs when Christians compromise the essentials of what we believe. You see, Satan's strategy is the same today as it was in Balaam's day. If I can't beat them, I'll just join them. If the devil can't persecute and intimidate the church, he'll infiltrate and contaminate it from the inside out. And Pergamos is the classic example. Understand, the church will never win the world by being like the world. We need purity. Well, verse 15, he he begins to speak to this church. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. It's interesting, prior to Constantine and his conversion to Christianity, churches met in homes. Few pastors ever got paid. But afterwards, after Constantine institutionalized the church, a professional clergy developed. Whereas in the New Testament, the greatest among you was the servant of all. Once the church gained social stature, its leaders became proud and privileged and prospered. And it's this sense of entitlement that Jesus hates. Again, pastors should exist to serve the people. The people don't exist to serve the pastors. Jesus says to this compromised church, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Boy, there comes a time when Jesus actually fights against his own church. 
when the church compromises to such an extent that they end up being the opponent of Jesus' purposes. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. You know, repentant believers who neglected the bread of God's word will be blessed by God with spiritual food and sustenance. He says, and I will give him a white stone. Those who repent, those who take heed to this message, they'll get a white stone. You know, a Roman trial judge would display a black stone to announce a person's guilt. But then they would show a white stone to mark their innocence. A white stone was an assurance of forgiveness. He says, and on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Believers that don't compromise will know a special intimacy with God. They will receive a white stone name that only he and them know. And any man who's gone through life with a girl's name like Sue or Sandy or whatever can appreciate the promise of a brand new name. How glorious that's going to be. I'm going to get a white stone name that's going to be special just between me and Jesus. I'm hoping he's going to name me Rocky or Bear or Duke. Something manly, okay? Verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Now Thyatira was the smallest and least important of these seven cities. And perhaps the believers there thought that they could slip through the cracks, that they were sort of off the grid. But not so. Jesus has eyes like a flame. He sees all. And he has feet like brass. Brass is a biblical idiom for judgment. Here Jesus has feet like brass. In other words, he's not afraid to put his foot down. And he does so with this church. He says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Boy, this was a church full of a good slate of service. Nevertheless... I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now apparently the compromise that first showed its head in Pergamos had ripened up the road in Thyatira. You know it's been said Tolerance is the virtue of the man who has lost his conviction. And tolerance ruled supreme in Thyatira. There was a woman, a wicked Jezebel, who led this church into full-blown idolatry. In the Old Testament, Queen Jezebel was the person who first introduced Baal worship into Israel. And now another Jezebel is added, but this one in the church. There was a pagan temple in Thyatira run by a priestess, and it was dedicated to all religions. The church took pride in its tolerance. But where all gods are worshipped, the one true God has been forsaken. And likewise, during the Middle Ages, the seeds of compromise blossomed into full-blown idolatry. Mary of Nazareth, 
a sweet servant of the Lord, a noble example, was turned into, quote, the mother of God. All kinds of idolatrous notions arose around Mary. Her perpetual virginity and her immaculate conception and her ascension into heaven. Today, Roman Catholicism considers Mary a co-redeemer with our Lord Jesus. And my friends, this is blasphemous. Recall Jezebel was the queen who falsely accused Naboth. She had him stoned so she could take his vineyard. And this is what happened throughout the Dark Ages. The inquisitions were the tool used by the popes to kill off all of their rivals and to confiscate their wealth. During this period, the popes, they they accumulated great riches. It was during this time that the doctrine of papal infallibility developed. Even the selling of indulgences or divine pardons for sin took place. It was heretical. And Jesus says of this church, verse 21, And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Thyatira exhausted the Lord's patience. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. Notice the Thyatiran church apparently remains today. For Jesus threatens to throw her into great tribulation, those judgments that are yet future. Here's a church that will miss the rapture unless it repents of its spineless tolerance for spiritual infidelity. Verse 23, and I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. And I want you to notice those words. They're printed in red letters, aren't they? You know what that means? That means they're the words of Jesus. And they are strong words, are they not? I will kill their children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. Apparently, this is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is the Jesus who puts his foot down. Realize the same Jesus who died to save your soul will bust your chops if you try to play him for a fool and pretend he doesn't care about how you really live your life. You see, you show your love for Jesus by how you work and have sex and spend money and how you order your daily life. Never forget that. He says, now to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And this is interesting to me. Though Thyatira represents a compromised religious system, not all of its members had fallen away from the truth that's in Christ. There were a few who had held fast. You know, this proves that it is possible to be a true believer even in a heretical church. The question comes up, can a Roman Catholic be saved? Well, of course they can. Though the gospel is clouded by the traditions of Catholicism, it's still present in the church, in its teachings. And those who hold fast to the essentials will certainly be saved. Verse 26, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, 
as I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Oh, the morning star, it appears just before the break of day. And what event occurs prior, just prior to the day of the Lord or these coming judgments? It's the rapture. I believe here Jesus promises the faithful believers in Thyatira an early exit. They too will be raptured. For he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. The word Thyatira literally means continual sacrifice. And this is how Roman Catholicism distorted the sacrament of communion. You know, the Bible teaches that Jesus was offered once for all on the cross. And yet Roman Catholics believe that the bread and wine are literally the body and blood of Christ. And thus, they sacrifice Jesus afresh every time they hold the mass. It's no accident then that Sardis, the word means escaping ones. This is the church who committed themselves to biblical truth and bravely rejected these Roman heresies. You see, Rome taught that grace was not enough. That good works were also necessary to make a person right with God. They still teach that. That Christ is not enough. That you need the intercession of the priest. That faith is not enough. That you also need to participate in the sacraments in order to gain God's favor. That scripture is not enough. They put church tradition on the same par, the same level of authoritativeness as scripture. And that the glory of God is not enough. That the church, and namely the Pope, should also share in Christ's glory. Guys, never forget the word Protestant. It means one who protests. And Sardis countered the Roman heresies with five solas. Sola gratia. Sola Christos. Sola fide. Sola scriptura. And sola deo gloria. Or... Grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, Scripture alone, and the glory of God alone. And these five solas became the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation. Reformers like Luther and Tyndall and Wesley, they sparked a spiritual revival in the church. Yet once those leaders died, the churches they spawned began to drift spiritually. What has happened today to the Lutherans, to the Episcopalians, to the Methodists, to the churches that those men started? Jesus says to the church at Sardis, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. And today, many mainline Protestant denominations, though they continue to carry the name of their great founder, They no longer know the zeal and the courage and the fire that that founder possessed. You know, it's been said, the work of God begins as a movement. But it becomes a machine. It then turns into a monument. And then it ends up a memorial. And this is what happened to the church at Sardis. You know, astronomers say that the light from the North Star takes 433 years to reach earth. 
that means that the North Star may have already flamed out. It could have died three, 430 years ago. And what we're seeing today is merely the light from its past. Well, such was the case with Sardis. The reputation of what it was continued to shine even after the church itself was dead. Verse 2. So be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. That you are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. You know, the Reformation, it rescued key biblical doctrines, but it didn't really go far enough. If you look back historically... As Jesus said, I have not found your works perfect or complete before God. Sardis had a stellar beginning, but it didn't continue and press on. Jesus says to them, remember therefore how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You know, one of the mistakes that the reformers made was their failure to rethink the biblical view of the end times. Luther and others just kind of carried over their Catholic eschatology. And thus there was no expectancy in the Sardis church of the Lord's soon return. This is why Jesus challenges them here to not only hold fast and repent, but to watch, to be ready. He says, you have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot out his name from the book of life but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Notice here, it is possible to have your name blotted out of the book of life. In short, a good start is not enough. Paul told the Colossians, you remember the verse, continue in the faith. Let's not just have a name that we're alive. Let's look to the one who has the seven spirits to fill us afresh over and over and over again with the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 wraps up this fifth letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, Philadelphia, you know what the word means? It's Greek word for brotherly love. I have a friend of mine that lives in Philadelphia. He says it should be brotherly shove. The word means brotherly love. And this is what should characterize every church. Philadelphia was on a major highway that connected Europe and Asia. It was called the gateway to the east. Beyond Philadelphia lay the rugged regions of Phrygia and Galatia. The tribes who lived there were backwoods. You see, Philadelphia was built by men, visionaries, who wanted to use it as a launching pad for the Hellenization of all of Asia. From from this city, Greek language and customs and religion could be exported eastward to all these uncultured, uncouth Uh, country bumpkins, you know, that laid beyond. And it's interesting that the Christians living in Philadelphia also adopted a mission mindset. What made this city a bridge for the spread of Greek culture also made it suitable for the preaching of the gospel. The church at Philadelphia was indeed a church on a mission. 
Like the vineyards that dotted the countryside, this was a fruitful church. This was the church of the open door. Verse 7. These things says he who is holy, who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Here Jesus introduces himself as the opener of doors. We should realize that Jesus has keys. He opens the door to God for us and he opens doors for us to be used by God in the lives of others. Philadelphia knew that, and they were ready to walk through the open door. Philadelphia was an opportunistic church. They had faith, not fear. Rather than sit back on past victories, they were focused on today's challenges and opportunities. This was a church on the move. In church history, Philadelphia represents the missionary enterprises of the 18th and 19th centuries. The great awakenings were spurred on by men who walked through open doors to deliver the gospel. Even today, the church is using new technologies and going new places and reaching new generations. Its motto should be carpe diem, seize the day. This should be the attitude of every church. But that's not all he says about this church. In verse 8, Jesus says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength. You know, it's interesting. Jesus says nothing negative of this church. Even the fact that he says that it has little strength, well, it did. It was a little church with little strength. But apparently, it's not a church's size that impresses the Lord. It's what it does with what it has. Is it a faithful church? In fact, here's what makes a great church in the eyes of our Lord. Jesus says of Philadelphia, You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Y'all, you, you were a little church. You had little strength. But you kept my word and you didn't deny my name. They were loyal to both God's living word and his written word. And this made them great. In the eyes of God. This is what makes any church great in God's eyes. And then Jesus promises them. Indeed I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. Who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed I will make them come and worship before your feet. And to know that I have loved you. Philadelphia was a little church on nobody's radar but God's. And yet Jesus vows to vindicate their loyalty. He promises to prove to their enemies, to those that had rejected them or scorned them or scoffed at them. He, he promises to prove to their enemies that this church was dearly loved by him. He's going to show his love for them before their enemies. Jesus says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This is the church that will be raptured. You know, for the next 14 chapters from really chapter 6 through chapter 19, we'll see terrible judgments unleashed upon planet earth. Today, the church suffers tribulation, but it's the world's tribulation upon the church. The day is coming when God will bring a tribulation upon the world. Here he refers to it as the great tribulation or the hour of trial. 
And from this, God will spare those who persevere in their faith. Verse 11, behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. You know, in the ancient world, you gave honor to a noteworthy citizen by inscribing their name on a pillar there in the local temple. Can you think of a greater honor than to have your name on a pillar in heaven? Oh, my. Well, that's what will happen to those who overcome. He says, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Not only will God write his name in his temple, but God writes his own name on us. You know, as kids, whenever we would go to summer camp, mom would always write our name in our underwear, on the elastic band, you know, in our underwear. She wanted us to make sure that we didn't lose what belonged to us. And this is God's attitude. We belong to him. So he promises to write his name on us. Verse 13 says to us once again, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, not beginning in terms of sequence, but in the sense of importance. In other words, the top of the list, the highest priority. The NIV translates it, the ruler of God's creation. You see, Jesus is the initial word, the amen. He is the reliable word, the faithful and true witness. But he is also the last word. He is the king of all creation. Smyrna and Philadelphia are the two churches about which Jesus had nothing bad to say. Laodicea is the one church about which he had nothing good to say. Laodicea means the people rule. Rather than submit to God, these people march to their own drummer. They called Jesus Savior, but they had never embraced him as their Lord. You could call the church at Laodicea the hijacked church. They took his church away from Jesus. And the Lord judges them. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Christians are like coffee. Piping hot is good. Iced coffee is a delicacy. Either hot or cold is what you want. But you don't want in between. Lukewarm, tepid, muted, room temperature coffee. What do you do? You spew it out. It doesn't taste good. You spit it out of your mouth. You know, Laodicea had two sister cities in the Lycus Valley. Ten miles to the east was the city of Colossae. It was there by a mountain stream, a stream that flowed down from the peaks and carried cool, fresh water. Six miles north was Hierapolis, known for its hot springs. Even today, folks go there to visit the thermal waters. 
The water supply for Laodicea came from Colossae and from Hierapolis. The Roman aqueducts can still be seen today. But by the time the cold water arrived from Colossae, the hot Turkish sun had warmed it up. And over the six miles from Hierapolis, the hot water had cooled down. Thus, Laodicean water was notoriously lukewarm. If you were a visitor there and didn't know it, you'd take one sip and you'd spit it out. You'd be repulsed by the lukewarm taste. And this was God's reaction to the spiritual temperature of the believers in Laodicea. They were neither zealous about the things of God, nor were they obstinate. They were just indifferent. They just didn't care. They had a faith that couldn't be felt and that wouldn't be noticed. In short, they were comfortable. Comfortable with their lives. On Sunday, they pretended to care about the things of God. But Monday through Saturday, they did what was easy. Rather than turn up the heat for Jesus, they registered 98.6. They were just average, just mediocre. They just got by. Rather than leave a big footprint, rather than make a difference, they just got by. And understand, Jesus hates this kind of mediocrity. He says, I could wish you were cold or hot. In other words, go big or go home. He has no room for those who just want to get by and be mediocre. Jesus says in verse 17, Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. They're just comfortable. And do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Notice, lukewarmness blinds you to the truth about yourself. Lie to yourself enough and you begin to believe it. The Laodiceans, they thought they were rich, but in God's eyes, they were bankrupt. You remember in contrast, back in chapter 2, verse 9, Jesus speaks of the persecuted church there in Smyrna. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. Smyrna thought they were poor, but the Lord saw them and considered them rich. Laodicea believed themselves to be rich, but the Lord considered them poor. Boy, how God sees us and how we see ourselves are not always the same, are they? Once a woman, she said to her doctor, she says, Doctor, I've got an embarrassing problem. I pass gas constantly. You just can't hear it or smell it. In fact, it's happened a dozen times just since I've been talking to you. Well, the doctor, he prescribed some medicine to her. Scheduled her for a return visit. A few weeks later, she, she came back and, and she said, Doctor, the problem's no better. I still can't hear it, but now I can smell it. The doctor said, well, good. Now that we've cleaned out your sinuses, maybe we can start working on your ears. This was the problem with the Laodicean church. The believers were oblivious to their own smell, to their own stinky condition. And Jesus gives them advice in verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. The Laodiceans need to clothe themselves in Christ. And anoint your eyes with eyesalve, that you may see. This region was famous for kind of a white chalky powder that, that they used to treat eye infections. 
This church needs to apply some spiritual salve to their eyes to see clearly. Verse 19 is reassuring. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. If you have been rebuked by the Lord, take heart. Jesus only rebukes those that he loves. He disciplines his children. He wants us to repent. And he wants us to respond positively to his discipline. And then in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Here's a verse that's often used to invite unbelievers to come to Jesus. You hear this often at an invitation after service. But sadly, it was written initially to the church. Jesus knocks on the door of his own church. Jesus is on the outside of his own church. A stranger to his church. Reminds me of the little girl who went home after church on one Sunday morning and she prayed, Dear Jesus, we had a good day at church. I just wish you'd been there. All that's missing from a lot of churches is Jesus. Sadly, this may well be the picture of the last church, the modern church. Church at Laodicea, Jesus on the outside looking in. How sad. Well, to him who overcomes, to the person who refuses to drop to room temperature, but stays on fire with the Holy Spirit, with a passion for God, who keeps their first love, to him I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May the Lord give us all spiritual ears to take to heart these messages to the church. And there we have Revelation chapters 2 and 3.